Thank you, Eric. I appreciate that song. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 2 Peter, chapter number 3. 2 Peter, chapter number 3, tonight. It's good to be in church. Looking forward to the, I don't know if you know this or not, but preachers look forward to the preaching of the Word of God, whether they're preaching or somebody else is preaching, because ultimately preachers, hopefully, if they've done a good job in their study, that they have first digested their own word before they have given it to uh, a group of people that they're called to speak to. And so I too am looking forward to the preaching of God's word. Second Peter chapter number three, this will be my third message on the path of Peter. Peter's my favorite uh, apostle, favorite New Testament character, probably my favorite character in the Bible. And in so many ways, Peter is truly uh, an exceptional man. And it is Peter that God uses to encourage us and tell us how to grow. In fact, that's what he says in, in 2 Peter chapter number 3, verse number 18, the last phrase of the last book that Peter would ever write. The Bible says in verse number 18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be, both, uh, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And so if Peter was here today, he would look at you and he would say, if you are not more gracious today than you were last year, you're not growing. If you are not more knowledgeable about the things of God today than you were last year, you're not growing. And so Peter is, the, Peter is the New Testament man that God used to teach us and to encourage us how to grow. We're going to look at another passage in his short two epistles where he also encourages us to grow. So you can go back to 1 Peter chapter number 1, and we're going to look at another place where he encourages us to grow. He truly was an exceptional man in so many different ways. Uh, Peter may have been the first or easily one of the first disciples called into the ministry of Jesus Christ. He was very clearly the leader of the disciples. You will never see a list of disciples in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where Peter is not listed first. He's always listed first. He was clearly the leader of the apostles. I'm told that if you added up all the words that Peter spoke and that is recorded for us in Scripture, that his words would be more collectively than all of the other 11 apostles combined. That's how much of Peter's words are recorded for us in the Bible. And so Jesus uh, allows us to do something with Peter that he doesn't allow us to do with a lot of other people in the Bible, which is to get very close to Peter. We can see Peter. We see Peter's strengths. We see Peter's weaknesses. And so when you look at Peter and you study his life from beginning to end for what we have in the recorded text, Peter is an exceptional human being. He was one of the few people that had their name changed by God himself. Peter was there at some of the most personal and intimate moments in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, The book of Acts opens with the first century ministry of Peter the Apostle. The book of Acts closes with the first century ministry of Paul the Apostle. Peter's the one that walked on water. Peter was the one that caught a fish with a coin in its mouth. Peter was the one that was publicly rebuked by Jesus Christ. Peter was publicly rebuked by Paul. Peter was the one that saw the glorified Christ in his kingdom before he tasted of death. Uh, Peter boasted that he'd never deny the the Lord, and we obviously know that that's one of the uh, few things that's recorded in all four Gospels is the denial of of, of Jesus by Peter. And so Peter was so interested, Jesus was so interested in Peter's restoration that when the angel who announced the resurrection of Christ to Mary Magdalene, the angel himself said, hey, go your way. Tell the disciples, and then he said, and Peter, that he goeth before into Galilee. Jesus made a special point to reach out specifically to Peter. Peter was a man that was very diligent in his work life. He was very diligent in his faith before he ever met the Lord. 
And we know that because Acts chapter 10, Peter is recorded as in a personal private prayer with the Lord. Peter is recorded as saying that he had never eaten anything that was unclean. And that's a statement that we often might read over and not think much of. But for Peter, listen, this is, this is a preacher who's not boasting in front of the pulpit that he had never broken the dietary laws of the Jew, of the Jewish Old Testament. This is a man that's in his personal time with the Lord, praying to God, saying, hey, Lord, you know I've never broken the dietary laws. He's not boasting in an, in, in an exaggerated story behind a pulpit. This is his personal quiet time with the Lord. And he is telling God, I've never broken the dietary law. And you can take from that and extrapolate into his life that if he was that diligent in the one aspect of the dietary law of Moses, he would have been diligent in, in every area of his life. He was a hardworking, blue-collar man uh, who was just an exceptional, exceptional man. Peter tells us in, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 that holy men of God uh, uh, were moved by the Holy Spirit as they wrote the Scriptures. And so the Holy Spirit moved Peter to write these two short epistles that we have. And what I want to do tonight is just continue my thought on the path of Peter as we look at how this apostle who encourages us to grow, as we look at what he did uh, to grow himself. Um, notice what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter number 1, verse number 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these, these epistles were written to the strangers scattered throughout this land. And if you look at the book of James, we're not going to do that tonight, but James seems to have written to only Jewish believers. Peter didn't do that. Peter wrote to Jewish and Gentile believers. And Peter didn't specifically write to a church per se, like the church of Smyrna, the church of Ephesus. Peter is considered a general epistle because it's written to all Christians, but the church is clearly in the mind of Peter when he writes this. Keep your hand here. Go up to chapter 5 of this book, and you, you can see how the church is in Peter's mind as he writes this epistle. He has us in his mind. He has the preachers and teachers of the church in his mind as he writes this. Notice what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, the Bible says, The elders which are among you, that's another word for pastor, uh, elder. The elders which are among you, I exhort, here it is, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So, as Peter was writing this epistle, it was not specifically written to a church, but he clearly had the church in the background of this epistle as he wrote this. And you can see that from, from chapter 5, verse 1. You can go back to chapter 1. And so Peter is writing to these scattered believers uh, throughout this region. Uh, another place in, in the epistle in chapter 2, he calls them strangers. We, we might be familiar with the word pilgrim. We in American history, we learn about the pilgrims. They're people that uh, were transplanted here. And so Peter is writing to the pilgrims of God, the strangers of God, if you will. And he explains that to us in verse 2. He tells us how we are the elect of God. Now, that word elect shouldn't scare you. If you're saved, you're a part of the elect. All right, God doesn't, God doesn't pick and choose who, who is the elect. And he doesn't pick and choose who goes to heaven and then pick and choose who goes to hell. You mark it down. If, if you are saved, you are part of the elect. And so Peter is writing here to these uh, saved strangers, these Jews and Gentiles who, according to verse 2, are, are, are the elect of God. According to verse 3, they have a living hope in them. According to verse 4, these people that he's writing to have an, uh, have an eternal inheritance that will never fade away. And so what Peter's doing is he's giving us some of the positions that we have in Christ 
before he tells us how to grow. See, he wants us to make sure that you're in Christ before you can grow. If you're going to, go, if you're going to grow spiritually, you first have to have spiritual life. And so he's writing to these people, these strangers uh, in this region, and he's writing specifically to the saved people. You can go up to chapter uh, 2. Actually, you know what? Stay in chapter 1. Go up to verse uh, 18. Go to verse 18. And he's going to hammer home this idea of writing to saved people as he tells them how they got saved. In verse 18, he says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He's, he's telling this people how they truly got saved. He's saying, you didn't get saved by money. In fact, Peter was the one that told Simon, thy money perish with thee, because thou thoughtest that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Uh, he's saying, you don't, get, you don't get saved by money. Uh, he's saying, you get saved, according to verse 19, by the precious blood of Christ. He says in verse 23, he uses a phrase that's not often used. We use it today, but it's not an oft-repeated phrase in the Bible. It's listed three times in Scripture. Verse 23, he says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And so he says in verse 19, hey, you're saved by the blood of Christ. In verse 22, verse 23, he says, you're saved by the word of God. By the way, I hope you know that. You're saved. Every sin that you've ever committed, if you're saved, has been cleansed, not covered, cleansed by the blood of Christ. And you understand that because of the truth of the word of God. So Peter says, you're saved by the blood of Christ and you're saved by the word of God. That's what he tells us, which launches us into chapter two with the first word of chapter two being wherefore. And so he is connecting the path of growth that he's about to lay out with the fact that you're already saved. He understands, Peter does, that you cannot have spiritual growth unless you first have spiritual life. Understand, if you're not saved in here tonight, you cannot grow spiritually. It is impossible. You can grow physically. You can grow emotionally. You can grow in a lot of different ways. But if you are not saved, if you do not have Jesus Christ living inside of you, you cannot grow spiritually. Which is why in chapter 2, verse 1, he uses the word wherefore. He connects chapter 1, the fact that you're already saved, with chapter 2 as to how to grow. Let's look at the path of Peter and how to grow in chapter 2, verse number 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Notice in verse 2 that Peter wants us to grow. It's the same thing he said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that we should grow in grace. Here he repeats that same sentiment. Remember, Peter seems to be the New Testament apostle of growth. He's constantly encouraging us how to grow, whether it's through sufferings, like it is in this book, or other ways. He's wanting us to grow. And so let's look at the recipe that, God, that Peter gives us, God gives us through Peter, as to how to grow. Listen, I hope you want to grow tonight. Amen. If you are saved, there should be some part of you that just wants to do better. Not that you do better for your fellow man, but that you do better for the Lord, Amen. that you do better for your family. Listen, your family doesn't, doesn't deserve a worse father or a worse mother. They deserve the best that you can be, the, the, the best person, the best Christian that you can be. I hope your heart's desire is to grow. If you don't want to grow, 
You are either not saved or you are so backslidden that the devil has, has deceived you into thinking that, you know, this rut that I'm in is, is just fine. It's not fine. God wants you to grow. He gives you recipe after recipe after recipe in the Bible for how to grow. Remember, this passage right here, you can emphatically say that this is God's will for your life. You don't have to read this passage and wonder if this is God's will. This is God's will for your life. Think about this for a moment. Parts of Scripture are only good for this life. In heaven, you, you very likely may be growing in heaven, but in heaven, you're going to be done with evil speakings and envyings and hypocrisies. These, these things will not be a part of your life in heaven. And so this portion of Scripture, listen to me, it's for time. It's not for eternity. That means it's for you today. Amen. This is for you to look at, to read, to digest, and to apply to your life today. Not tomorrow, like the pastor talked about this morning. Not tomorrow, today. So let's look at the path of Peter and how he wants us to grow. The Bible says in verse number one, chapter two, verse number one, he says, wherefore, we already talked about that. He's connecting chapter one to this. He says, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies. That phrase laying aside means that you thoughtfully chose to grow in your, spiritually life, your spiritual life. To, the phrase laying aside means that you willingly lay aside the things that weigh you down. The phrase laying aside means you purposefully lay these things down. You thoughtfully, you willingly, and you purposely lay these things aside. Laying aside doesn't mean you do it by chance. It means you lay it down. Laying aside doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't just happen with time. It happens with time and effort. Amen. Laying aside doesn't happen because God wills it. Listen to me. Laying aside sins happens because you will it. It is God's will for your life. So, so it doesn't happen if God wills it. It happens if you will it. Uh, the image here is the idea of laying aside a dirty set of clothes. This phrase is used at the stoning of Stephen. Some of you that, that read the book of Acts regularly might remember the phrase that they, that they laid down their coats at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. You might remember that phrase. It's the same thought. It's a, it, it, he's giving you a picture here of what it means to lay aside. You purposely lay off dirty garments and put on new garments. I took a vacation day from work this past Friday. I had to do some work on, on a truck that I have. And when I was doing the work on that truck, let's just say that I got a little bit of transmission fluid all over me. If you've never taken a bath in transmission fluid, boy, it's just a joyous moment in your life. It comes out oily, it comes out filthy. It, 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 the position that I was in, I couldn't move. And so you just kind of just deal with it. You're getting soaked in transmission fluid and it is what it is. We finished the project. Uh, I got home at four or five, something like that. And by then the transmission fluid had had a time to just soak into my entire body. Soaked into my clothes, my pores, you name it. And uh, we had a Christmas gathering that night. So I walk in and uh, the first person I saw was my daughter. And I go up to her and say, hi, sweetie. And, and she looks at me with just, you know the look that your kids give where they're just disgusted with your existence? She looks at me and she says, you stink. And there was no hug. There was no, it was just, you're filthy. And so I, I, I uh, took a shower. I, I took those clothes when, after I was done with the shower, and I put them in the garage. And then what I did is I put on new clothes. 
so that when I went to the Christmas gathering that night, the people that saw me that night had no idea the dirty garments that I had laid aside. They saw me in new garments. That is what Peter is saying here. He's saying, take off these fleshly garments that you had from your birth, from your natural birth that you got from your parents, from that sin nature that you gained from Adam. Lay aside these things and put on this new nature. That is the idea of what Peter is talking about. Uh, keep your hand here and go back in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. This is a thought that is not new to Scripture. This is a thought that the Apostle Paul also mentioned. Ephesians chapter 4. Keep your hand there in 1 Peter chapter number 2. But in Ephesians chapter number 4, notice what Paul tells us. He says in verse 22, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, that ye, here it is, put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt after the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, wherefore putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Notice in verse 22, Paul says, put it off. In verse 25, Paul says, put it away. And it's the same idea that Peter is saying. Peter is saying, hey, lay these things aside. Paul is saying the exact same thing. In fact, go uh, back in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to see how often you're supposed to do this. 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, Paul tells us how often you're supposed to do this. The Bible says uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he's talking about the inward man. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Bible says in verse 16, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man, that's the new man, it's the same person, it's the new man, it's the person that is, that, that, that new nature that we have from Christ, says that inward man, notice this, is renewed, how often is the inward man renewed according to verse 16? Day by day. Go back to, to, to 1 Peter. That is why in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, laying aside, that I-N-G is important. Peter does not say lay aside meaning this is not a one-time act. Let that sink in. This is not a one-time act. Much like everything else in our Christian life. Think about it. How many meals did you need to get nourishment? Thousands. Like that meal only sustained you for so long. You, like you didn't work out one time and then you never worked out again. If you're going to be healthy, you have to diet and exercise. Right? How much sleep did you get? You get sleep every single day. Why? There are certain things in our life that need to be renewed day by day. That is why Peter says, laying aside. He did not say, lay it aside. You can never say, well, I did that one time. That's not how the Christian life works by and large. There are a few things that you do one time, like baptism, like salvation. Most things in the Christian life is a repeated process until you uh, get to the, the, to the fullness of, and maturity that Christ wants to bring you to, which is why that phrase, laying aside, is an important phrase. It's not a one-time act. It is a repetitious thing that is done day by day. So he says in verse 1, wherefore, laying aside, and then he's going to give us some things that we need to lay aside. Remember, these are not one-time act things. These are day-by-day -day things that we must regularly lay aside. He says, first of all, all malice. You say, what's malice? Malice is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, and it's connected to wickedness. Malice and wickedness describe the way of the old man. Remember, in chapter 1 of Peter, he's talking about how to get saved. He's, talking to, he's, he's, referring to, he's writing to saved people. And so these things that we're supposed to lay aside, they are of our old nature. 
This is, these are things that, that not just a couple of people have. These are things that all of us have. These are things that every human being that has, an, uh, has a, nature from God, uh, a nature from Adam, all of us have these same things, which is why all of us need to lay them aside. You say, how did Peter grow so well? Because of this path that he's giving us. This is not certain people that have these sins. It's all of us that have these sins. And so he starts with malice, which is the way of the old man. Malice is a word that means harboring ill will. Malice is the idea of intending to do evil towards someone. Malice is often connected to anger. Malice is rooted in the spirit of revenge. Who do you have malice toward tonight? Who is it in your life that you, if you could get back at them, you would get back at them? See, sometimes young people, we talk about young people and young adults, and and, and we think to ourselves, well, you know, from a moral perspective, there are certain things morally that they would do with someone of the opposite gender if they could and didn't get caught. Well, listen, adults do that same thing with malice. There, there are things, what would you do to somebody if you could do it to them and you didn't get caught? That's malice. It's this idea that's connected to, to anger. Uh, Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines uh, malice as enmity of the heart. Understand, enmity and enemy are not the same thing. Enemy means you just, you you don't like somebody else, they're your enemy. Enmity rises above enemy. Enmity says you're actively trying to destroy the other, which is why the Bible says before you were saved, you were at enmity with God. God was actively trying to destroy your way of life. You were actively trying to destroy God's way of life. When you got saved, you submitted to God's way of life and you're no longer at enmity with him. That's what that means. So who do you have a malice toward? Who do, you, who do you have a desire of destruction for? Listen, malice is a sin of the heart. Wickedness is a sin of the body. Malice is internal. Nobody sees your malice. Wickedness is external. Everyone sees your wickedness. Malice is, a, is rooted in a deep anger. Peter says, hey, put away all malice. Notice he doesn't say put aside malice. See, a lot of us, we like a certain amount of malice in our heart. We, we like it, kind of like getting angry. I do, you do. We can pretend that we don't, but there are certain people we can sort of just stew over. He says, P- Peter is saying, if you want to grow, put it all away. Don't put some of it away. Don't put 99% of, uh, of it away. Put as much away as God will show to you, and you put that away. He doesn't stop with malice. He says in verse one, wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile. You say, what is guile? Guile is described as the word subtlety in regards to the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. They were filled with guile. They were filled with subtlety. Um, Guile is telling the truth almost. That's what guile is. Guile is almost telling the truth. Guile is telling the truth about the other party in a conflict, but forgetting the part that you have to do with. Conveniently leaving out part of it. That's guile. I was probably 20 years old. I don't know, 21. I'm so old now, I forget. Decades, you know, it's like, I don't, was I in my 20s, my 30s, or 40? I don't know when this stuff happened. I was in my 20s. I was young. My grandmother was in the hospital. She was dying of cancer. And uh, she, at this time, was fine. She was held, uh, like she was, you know, aware of her surroundings. And she had asked me, I was in Western Hills at one of the hospitals there. And she said, Joey, can you go to my apartment and get whatever she wanted? I said, sure, Grandma, no problem. And uh, at that age, as young men are sometimes wont to do, I drove like an idiot. 
And uh, she lived in an apartment complex of seniors where, by and large, they didn't drive like idiots. And so I drive onto the complex, and I'm in, you know, my Jeep Wrangler, and I'm just zipping up through all these things, not caring at all that old people are around. Because in my own mind, I'm in complete control. I get whatever she wanted out of the apartment uh, that she had there, and I jump back in my Jeep. And as I'm going back to my Jeep, a guy in a golf cart comes up to me, and he's just yelling at me. He's like, you can't drive. Like, there's old people around here. He was furious. And I was, I, as soon as he started yelling at me, I was like, I, I kind of deserve this. And, but immediately, I said to him, without even thinking about it, I said, I'm really sorry. My grandmother's in the hospital. She's dying of cancer. And she wanted me to get something for her. And he immediately said, oh, man, Mrs. Clawwitter, yeah, I'm so, man, I, I hope she does well. Let me ask you a question. Was I honest when I said that she's dying of cancer in a hospital and wanted me to get something for her? Was I being honest? Yes. But was I using guile? Yes. Because I was acting like that's the reason I was driving like a maniac. It was probably like a calculator or a Sudoku puzzle. Who knows what old people want at that age? But whatever it was, wasn't something that she needed at that moment. And I immediately, without hesitation, knew exactly how to use guile. By the way, so do you. So do you. We do it without thinking. We tell the truth almost. Go back in your, keep your hand here. Go back in your Bible to John chapter 1. Even apostles that we don't know much about, what we do know about them, it makes it very, very clear why they were chosen by Jesus to be an apostle. Nathaniel is one of these men. We do not know much about the apostle Nathaniel. But we have one phrase, we have more than that, but, but we have at least one phrase that Jesus says about Nathaniel, and, and it's really all we need to know about how great Nathaniel was. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse number 45, uh, verse 44, Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathaniel and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him. Note Now, get the picture here. He, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him. And then the Bible says, Jesus said this of Nathanael, which means Nathanael was, Jesus was not speaking directly to Nathanael, he was speaking about Nathaniel. So Nathaniel's in earshot. Jesus is speaking to those that are next to him. And Jesus says of Nathaniel in verse 47, Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathaniel was a man that was completely honest and transparent in every transaction he ever had. I shouldn't say every, you know what I mean. As an adult, and as he matured, he was completely transparent and, and, and honest in all of his dealings with people. He was so honest. Notice what he says to Jesus in verse 48. So, so Jesus says, hey, this is Nathaniel, uh, an Israelite indeed is whom, no, in whom there's no guile. Which means this wasn't many Israelites. See, Jesus is like, hey man, finally a Jew that's not lying about everything. That's what Jesus is, is likely saying here. He says in verse 48, he says, Nathaniel saith unto him, whence knowest thou me? Let me ask you a question. Sometimes, and you've seen this happen, you'll give somebody a compliment. And it's an honest compliment. You mean what you say. They're a good singer, preacher, 
whatever they've been encouraging to you. you. You give them a compliment, and sometimes people will say something to this effect. Oh, no. You ever see people do that? No. What are they doing when they're saying, oh, no? They're saying, say that again. That's what they're saying. They're saying, oh, no, but they're thinking, I like the sound of that. Can you say that again for me? Nathaniel wasn't like that. Jesus said, hey, this guy has no guile. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Nathaniel basically says, you're right, I don't have any guile. How did you know that? And that's what led Nathaniel to realize that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Why? Because Nathaniel was a man that had no guile. How much guile do you have? See, you have just as much as I do. You're filled up with it in your fleshly nature. It's only through your spiritual nature that you'll get control of that. You need to do your business dealings and your communication and all things with no guile. That's how you grow. Go back to uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter. So he says in verse 1, laying aside all malice. He says all guile. And then he says hypocrisies. Now that's a tough word. We as a Christian people, as a church people, the world would call us religious. We don't like to be considered hypocrites. Uh, A hypocrite is somebody that pretends. Listen, if you want to know who a hypocrite is, think of Hollywood. Hollywood is filled with people that pretend. I don't, listen, the people in Hollywood, let, let, let me say it like this. They don't exist. Their character exists. If you really, uh, most of you probably had seen this when Will Smith went up and smacked Chris Rock. That is who Will Smith really is. That's Will Smith. Will Smith on the big stage is not Will Smith. Will Smith, from a Hollywood, from our perspective, what we see in Hollywood, he doesn't exist. The Will Smith that smacked Chris Rock, that is the Will Smith. And so when you think of hypocrisies, think of somebody that's acting. Think of somebody that's play acting. That's why they're called characters. They're, they're, they're acting out a character. They're play acting. All right? Listen, all of us struggle with an inconsistency in our life. Every single, I don't care how spiritual you are. You struggle with inconsistencies from time to time in your own character and different things. Peter, when he says put away hypocrisies, he's not talking about the inconsistencies that all of us have. Listen, my kids and my wife could come up here and tell you times that I get angry. An inconsistency like that is not the same as hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is play acting a role that you make no effort to be whatsoever in your private life. That is hypocrisy. By the way, all of us have this nature. All of us want to be thought well of. If if you're one of these people that say, I don't care what people think about me, you're lying to yourself. You're, 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 You're producing guile in your own spirit on yourself because all of us have this in us. All of us have a nature of being hypocritical. Uh, But inconsistencies and hypocritical, being hypocritical, they're not the same thing. And by the way, that means I don't know who the hypocrites are here. There are likely hypocrites here. But because this is a condition of the heart, much like malice and guile, I don't know who the hypocrites are. The hypocrites in here could be the ones nodding their heads and smiling because that's part of their act. The hypocrites in here could be the ones that look angry right now. I I don't know. By the way, neither do you. Hypocrisy is one of those things. It's a condition of the heart. And only God truly knows when you've crossed that line into hypocrisy. If you are inconsistent and give no care to your inconsistencies, that will grow into hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the end result of of living a blatantly inconsistent life. Peter says, put away hypocrisy. 
Now, the world would tell you, and you, you, you've probably heard this, maybe you've only heard it in church. I've heard it multiple times. The world would tell you, the church, I don't go to church, why? Because the church is full of what? Say it. Hypocrites. Church is full of hypocrites. Listen, they have no idea what they're talking about. The church has hypocrites. Listen to me. The church isn't full of hypocrites. I am not full of hypocrites here. There may be hypocrites sprinkled here, but I'm not full of hypocrites. Let me show you who the real hypocrites are. Keep your hand here and go back in your Bible to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. People that say that the church is full of hypocrites, all they're doing is exposing their ignorance on spiritual issues. That's all they're doing. They have no idea what the church is full of. Listen, my experience, and I've been saved, I'm so old, I don't know how long I've been saved. 30 some years, 37 years, 36 years, something like that. I've been in church a long time. Listen, the church is full of good people who struggle from time to time, just like I do, but keep coming back because they want to be better. That's who the church is full of. The church isn't full of hypocrites. Notice what the Bible says in Luke chapter 12, verse number 46. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him, a, cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. I want you to note that phrase at the end of verse 46, uh, will appoint him his portion with the what? What's the Bible say? Unbelievers. Go to the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 24, and I want you to see who the real hypocrites of this world are. Matthew chapter 24. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 24, this is a parallel passage. This is something that Jesus said, and multiple authors of the New Testament recorded it. And so he's going to say something in Matthew 24, and he's going to use a slightly different word which is going to interpret that word unbelievers for us. Remember from Luke 12, that word that I told you to make mental note of was unbeliever. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 24, verse 50. Matthew 24, verse 50. And the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him. So if you compare the wording, this is clearly a parallel passage. Uh, and, And in an hour when he is not aware, here it is, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the what? What's the next word? Hypocrites. So from God's perspective, who are the real hypocrites? Unbelievers are. Because they're acting like they're right with God when they're not. They're they're play acting that they're religious when they're not. They think they're on their way to heaven, they're on their way to hell. The Bible interprets the word unbeliever as hypocrites. So put off from you this play acting, this idea that you think you're putting on a facade for somebody and you make no effort for it whatsoever. I'm not talking about basic inconsistencies. All of us have that. I'm talking about blatant hypocrisy. Peter says, if you want to grow, put that off from you. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Remember, these things that Peter lists, they're all things that we're filled with from our birth. We're filled with con- from conception. When we get saved, we then have the ability to put these off. And this is the path of growth that Peter wants to take us through. The Bible says uh, in verse 1, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies, here it is, and envies. You say, what's envy? Well, Pilate, if you compare what, uh, the, the, the scripture that has to do with Pontius Pilate, Pilate knew that the Jewish leaders had delivered Jesus for destruction because of envy. 
He knew that. The Bible records it for us. Um, jealousy in the Bible is wanting something that is not yours, okay? Envy is a little different. They go together, but they're a little different. Jealousy is wanting something that is not yours. Envy is not wanting something, somebody to have that they rightly deserve. And so when Pontius Pilate knew that the religious leaders delivered Jesus up for envy, what he is saying is that the religious leaders wanted the praise that Jesus was getting. It was rightfully his. The religious leaders had envy. They wanted that, that praise. The religious leaders looked at the adoration that Jesus rightly had. They wanted that. Why? They were envious. Jealousy is different. Envy is wanting something for yourself that somebody else clearly has. Think about this. Here's how you know if you have the spirit of envy. If you're ever next to somebody or close by and you over, maybe you just overhear a conversation and somebody else is complimented, what's your first thought? If you're a singer here and you hear somebody else's singing get complimented, what's your first thought? Do you think, well, I'm a good singer too? That, that's the spirit of envy creeping in. Well, I shouldn't say creeping in, it's in you. It's in me. Uh, somebody else gets promoted at church, somebody else gets promoted at work, and you, your first thought is, well, he doesn't deserve that, she doesn't deserve that, why didn't, they do, why didn't they give that to me? Why didn't they think about me for that position? That's envy. It's something all of us have. It's an internal sin. It's not wickedness. It's not, it's not external. But listen, that's envying that you've got to put away. Understand something. If you knew the full extent of a certain situation, and you were honest with yourself, you probably would have promoted that person too. You would have complimented that person too. So we should put away our envies. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 1, he goes on after envies and talks about evil speaking. And in context, he's likely talking about all of these sins and evil speaking connected to all of them. Any evil speaking specifically with malice and hypocrisies and guiles and envies. Listen, Evil speaking has divided friends, it's divided families, it's divided all types of things. The best thing you should do with your evil speaking is to just shut up. Amen. That's it. By the way, guess who Remember, he's writing to saved people. Guess who struggles with evil speaking? All of us do. It comes out like that. Our guile needs no, no introduction. It's just there. Our hypocrisy needs no introduction. And our evil speaking needs no introduction. It is there, ready to go. And Peter is saying, you need to put all this away. Once you put it away, notice verse 2. This is the growth. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Of all the ways that the Bible describes being saved, the older I get, and now that I have, at my age, a one-year-old at home, um, I really appreciate the phrase being born again. Amen. I appreciate the phrase here as newborn babes. Say, why? The Bible calls us when you get saved being born again. Why? Because when you hold a baby in your hand, guess what they don't have? They don't have a past. They have nothing behind them holding them down. They have no past. They only have a what? Future. From God's perspective, when you get saved, you have no past. That's why he can let you into heaven one day. From God's perspective, think about this. From God's perspective, you only have a future. And God wants you to grow. So he is saying to you in chapter two, verse one, he is saying, 
put aside that part of you that you got from Adam, that you got from your parents. And when you got saved, God says, hey, you're a newborn babe. You have no past. And this is how I want you to grow. That is what God wants for you. He says in verse two, he says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Listen, do you desire the word of God? Understand something about a baby. And I'm not a mom, but you know, a dad once or twice, three times over, I don't know. And I've seen babies cry. And a newborn babe, when they're crying, they're, they're not just, cr- usually, they, they can do this. They're not just crying to cry. Yes, sometimes they do that. But by and large, when a newborn babe is crying, they need something. Their diaper has been changed and they've been rested. What is it that they need? They need something to eat. They need some milk. They need some nourishment. And you take that bottle, you take the source of that food for that baby, and you put it at the point of the crying. That's how you get the crying to stop. And what Peter is saying is that, listen, there are newborn Christians here. You've been newborn long enough. You've been a babe in Christ long enough, and you're whining in life. You're crying in life. And Peter is saying you're crying because you don't have the sincere milk of the word. You don't have the word of God. And just like with a baby, you take that milk and you put it at the point of crying. What God is saying, hey, take this milk and put it at the point of the crying, and it'll stop. See, some of you have been crying long enough because you haven't been in the book. Amen. Notice he says in verse two, he says, as newborn babes des- desire the sincere milk of the word, not meat of the word. Listen, if you're struggling in life and you're genuinely struggling, you, I, I mean, m- maybe God will strike me dead here. You probably don't need to be in Ezekiel. You probably don't need to be reading up on, you know, Jeremiah and Obadiah and figuring out who the Edomites were and why they were so bad. You, you, know, you don't need the meat of the word. You need the milk of the word. You need Proverbs, you need Psalms, you need James, you need John, you need Peter. You need people that will come alongside of you that have been there. And Peter says, man, I've been there. I've struggled before. And Peter would look you dead in the eye and he said, this is how I grew. I put away these things and I put on the new man. You say, how, do you, how often do you do this, Peter? Well, you got, you're laying it aside. You don't lay it aside one time. It's laying aside. It's, it's day in and day out. And he would take you to the scriptures of Paul. And he would say, see how Paul says you got to do it day by day? Peter would say, that's how I do it, day by day, every day. P- Peter, listen, if Peter was alive today, he would have read his Bible. Amen. If Peter was alive today, he'd have been at church getting the sincere milk of the word. Amen. There's a reason God chose Peter. Peter to teach us how to grow. He knew how to do it. He says in verse two, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. It's, there's a desire there. Do you have that desire? He says in verse two, that ye may grow thereby. You know what it is when a physical baby does not grow? You know what that's called? That's called a tragedy. Amen. When something physical is happening to a baby and they don't grow, that's not a good thing. Man, you, you take that baby to doctors and you take them to hospitals and you take them to people that can help your baby. Why? Because that baby's not growing. That is a tragedy. You know what you call it when a Christian doesn't grow? Tragedy. Because you're refusing the milk of the word. You're refusing the preaching of the word. You're refusing the teaching of the word and you have not grown thereby. How do you grow? You grow thereby. You grow by the word of God, the milk of the word. Peter says, if you're not growing in grace, you're not growing. If you're not growing in knowledge, you're not growing. My question for you tonight is very simple. Are you growing? If you're not growing, 
you can point to some of these different portions in the books of, in the epistles of Peter, and he gives you a roadmap for growth. It's the path of Peter. It's how he grew. All he's doing is telling us how he grew. That's really what he's doing. He's one guy coming along, another Christian, and saying, hey, man, I've been there. This is how I did it. Amen. So if you need to grow, you need these kind of things in your life. Put, laying aside these things and picking up these other things. We'll stand for a moment of invitation as Erica comes.